Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Um, so today is April 15th the Ides of National Poetry Month. Um, <laughs> and I just can't think of a better way to celebrate it um, than with all of these wonderful poets at work. Um, so I'm going to introduce your real host for the evening, Terry Wolverton, um, who I'm sure as many of you know is the author of four novels, a book of short stories, two works of nonfiction, and three books of poetry, not to mention the editor of countless more books than that. She's been a teacher of creative writing and performance art since 1977, and in 1997, she founded the Creative Writing Center, Writers at Work. Um, so uh, we're just lucky enough to have um, so many of the poets at work uh, here today to read from their work. I'll let Terry introduce each of the poets, but I just want to say welcome to all of the poets and to all of you, and please join me in a round of applause for Terry Wolverton. Thank you, Liz, thank you. Uh, and I want to really um, thank Skylight Books, not only for hosting us today, but for being such an institution that supports local Los Angeles-based writers. And, you know, the independent bookstore is an endangered species, and it needs our support if we want to have it around. We have tons of great reasons, uh, events like today's, uh, the selection of books on the shelf, the knowledgeable staff who can guide you to almost anything that you might want. Um, these are the things that a local neighbor neighborhood independent bookstore can offer. But how do they survive? They survive because we spend our money here. So before you click on Amazon.com, you can go to skylightbooks.com and order your books through them and they'll send them in the mail and it's all very efficient. You can become a member of Skylight and then you get a discount on um, books from them. And you can leave here today with some poetry in your hand. Um, maybe my poetry, maybe Kim Dower's poetry, maybe poets, um, Sarah McClay's poetry, Ramon Garcia's poetry. Um, they have a, a well-stocked shelf of poetry titles. Um, and I hope that you'll avail yourself of the same. Because without this place, you know, it, we'd all, our community would be a lot poorer. Um, Poets at Work is a group that gets together every Saturday and uh, writes new things and talks about the work that each other is writing and uh, pushes each other to keep going, to take more risks, to write better and better and better and better and better poems. Uh, 
so it's uh, my privilege to be able to introduce uh, this group of poets to you today. You're, you will hear the great diversity of style and approach and content um, that should exist in any collection, uh, any grouping of poets. Uh, and uh, as a little extra National Poetry Month treat, uh, each of the poets uh, who are reading today has written a poem in response to the same prompt that I gave them. And that, what's a poetry prompt? Uh, that's just something to get you started. It's an idea like, what do I write about? Oh, here's an idea, boom, let's go with it. And some people take it quite literally and might really write about that topic. Other people might use it as a trampoline and just bounce off of it. So that prompt was, how was your weekend? And so you might hear in obvious and also in not obvious ways that idea uh, in, some, in the poems that um, each writer is reading today. So I think that's my business. It is my pleasure to introduce our first poet. I always have a special heart for the person who goes first. Um, so please welcome Yvonne M. Estrada. Every year. Where's Steven? Where's that guy? This thing? How about that? Are we good? Are we good? Oh, thank you, Liz. Is that, is that a little better? Yeah. Okay. So, uh, thank you for being here. And my first poem is uh, in response to that prompt, and it has no title. One Saturday morning, I stepped on two acorns. My right foot rolled sideways, and I heard crunch, crunch, pop real fast. I couldn't walk, and I had to hop over to some stairs. My ankle was swelling like the LA River during El Nino. I borrowed some crutches from my teenage boy cousin. But going to the art walk that night was canceled. Our first stepping out date. So my girl drove us to get some dinner at a noodle bar, and we took it home. The stars I saw that weekend still make every other star I have ever seen from every other life I have ever lived seem like fireworks in daylight. <clears throat> and this is a, a true story. The new time card procedure. <laughs> Training in room 128D. Friday at 10.30 a.m. Complaints and belly aching begin immediately. And it sounds, and it's just as horrible as it sounds. In the classroom I see a friend. We sit together, hating. We hate trainings and room 128D. We hate our coworkers that ask questions when the instructor asks, when the instructor asks if there are any. We hate the computer, we hate PowerPoint. I know time cards are important, but I can't handle the voice of the trainer. I write a note to my friend. This guy sounds like a kazoo. He scribbles back, yeah, irritating as hell and not even an official instrument. <laughs> then I draw a cartoon. Then he spills his coffee. Then it's over. 
We get paid for making kazoo sounds and laughing for the rest of the day. This is also uh, uh, continues uh, in regards to a clock. The time it takes for answered prayers. The clock does nothing except to remind you in a circular motion that things are here, we're here, we'll get here. Set a candle on the sill of a dark window. With fire and melting wax, we can speak to God at the speed of light. The sharp edge of our spiraling galaxy delivers slices of time to each of us. <clears throat> and this poem, this poem has an epigraph. The title is Search, and the epigraph is, If you can't see God in all, you can't see God at all. And it's a, a quote from Yogi Bhajan. I have gazed into, into drug-wild eyes, crazed with the desperation of more that filtered out anything like God. It took a long, hard look to see. God is easy to see in the beauty all around. Moonlight on the perfect shoulders of my sleeping lover. I am overcome with gratitude, a seer, a believer. God shines right out of babies. Goodness in their perfect little hands, wet mouths, or little milk teeth, even in their eyes dulled by fever. I have heard a woman beg for her baby to come back to life. She screamed as if she were cut in half by a steel trap. God poured out of all her brokenness. I have seen a man with a rosary around his neck gurgle out his last breath while he clutched the hand of a priest. God can be felt through the skin of those nearing death. I have had drunk, filthy, lice-ridden men and women call me every name. Cunt, bitch, dyke. I count to ten. Sometimes I have to count to ten a lot of times until I can locate God inside of me. And this is my last poem. And it also has no title. Your mother will perceive your soul first. She will receive you head first, bluish and silent. She will catch you, place her mouth over yours, and breathe in your first cries. This keeps the wild creatures away, for now. We will all be heard soon enough. How ready we are to be born, to become, each of us, a little bell ringing. Thank you. And now I would like to introduce to you the one and only Eric Howard. Thank you, Yvonne. All right. All right. Um, I'd like to read, uh, well, you know, on the theme of How Was Your Weekend, uh, I'd like to read a poem that puts about 10 years of weekends together in a little montage. And there's only one word that I'd like to explain. That's bolgia. 
It's uh, the terraces of hell from Dante's Inferno. I lived on a house on Westerly Terrace here, and not far from here in Silver Lake, um, and it did have a bunch of terraces to it. It's called, and so I addressed the house. It's called To the Terrace House. It was good to see your guts knocked out, enough to fill six truck containers and a new house rise from your frame after selling your aluminum-sided, earthquake-crooked fugliness. I regret kicking everyone out of you, the drunk punk and lame director, the wannabe PA who slept in your shed, drummer girl, a crackhead, a family, and finally me. Your cracks in which silverfish ants and roaches jogged are gone, like the black widow that charged out between my eyeballs as I wrenched your drain. No more crawlies with countless knees that wave like misfit mohawks still live in you to complicate the porn shoot, 500 bucks for your bills, where I learned the proper rolling of extension cords. Goodbye, shed that no band played in, soundproof too late to get drummer girl back. I am grateful for your coffee pot and happy pills and work by 8.30, boss says Saturday too. Three million words by Thanksgiving's greasy duck. I cooked for her just once. I respect your 70 shag carpet that my demented cat used as a toilet. Thank you, overflowing toilets, retaining walls that didn't, water heater that puked to death and curled the floor. Goodbye, surrealist bathroom and refrigerator and Sor Juana Inés de la Cruz, the hunchback iguana raised on burritos and diet Sprite. For your mortgage, I taught English 96 at the local CC more students than chairs the first night. Bless my evaluator's bourbon breath. I bid, I bid goodbye to the neighbor's spite fence. Everyone who lived in you, teacher, mother, faith healer, in-betweener, picked from the fruit trees of your bolgia. Goodbye, smoking air conditioner, unplumbed doors and untrue floors, houseplants dying in galvanized buckets, and 436,000 escrow fuckets. I miss Roger, Sticky, Nicky, and Chuckles, who came to collect from the psycho Satanist playboy model Severina, who was already gone after getting high in the bathtub. The bullet hole in your kitchen wall is gone. I washed away the red paint dye and dog hair pentacle from your broken gate. From the chair on your porch, I contemplated the snow tire on a wheel that bounded through the glass door and thumped twice its studs ripping carpet before going through a window and down the hill. A burglar took a boombox through that window after it was fixed. Goodbye, your bedroom, that drummer girl didn't come back to till morning when I left for work and she cranked hooker with a penis. Awe atque vale, Halloween party I threw to let her go with, waking up alone on the couch, door open, various vomits. Goodbye, 300 yard restraining order circling you and me both. I'll let go of those hundred drunk attempts to have that sex again with someone else. Bless the notches in the shotgun choke I pressed above my Adam's apple, brain out of reasons. After a shiver, one, I'd cause more pain. She said I loved you more than her. She was love, you were duty. I failed both, and the picture of her in my sweatshirt, drumming in the album with mostly empty pages, curl 
Uh, it's by setting it on fire and watching it turn black and curl cancerous smoke below your grapefruit. I'll let fall those 50, 50 pound bags of gravel. I shoulder down every step to the last level where the sun flecks like a gum, like a drum, like a heart attack. All right. All right, thank you. Um, and this next one, um, the, the weekend tie-in is it last weekend I said I'd be reading this here. <laughs> <laughs> and um, you know, it's my, it's kind of a, it's coming out poem. Um, curio is a word I'll explain. I used it for the pun in English. And um, he was also a Roman writer. It's called the unicorn. When fire sweeps the grass, horses sprint with me from danger. Then unheard me back to pink bedroom posters to fart rainbows and shake glitter from my mane. If I lived, I'd care. In Shakespeare's sonnet, some refuse to see me. Others want me dead to keep my blood from spreading. Cousin Pegasus, like me, is natural and unnatural. Curio describes Caesar so. Every woman's man and every man's woman. I broke my horn against a wall that grew a new one back. And Carrie Bradshaw, a fiction herself, declared me ungrown up after a brief spin of the bottle. Sometimes even I cannot decide and close my eyes and dream of rough pine planks and dusty me-free air, spun by the lights of my barn's mirror ball. All right, thank you very much. And I will be very pleased to announce the next reader, Sharon Venezio. We have to arrange readers by height. I'll <laughs> measure. <laughs> yes. How's that? Uh, I'm happy to be back here at Skylight, and I wanted to just take this opportunity to thank writers at work, and especially Turi, our teacher. The group has been uh, tremendously supportive. And I also wanted to, my sister's going to laugh at me, but I just found out it's Franny's third birthday. Franny is the cat. So if you see her, say happy birthday. <laughs> um, I'm going to read four poems, and the first one and a bit of the second one uh, is about my father, who's a nature photographer. And there's a reference in there, refrigerated grasshopper. And this is um, a reference to growing up, I would occasionally find jars in the refrigerator with a grasshopper in them. So you had to be really careful making peanut butter and jelly. You didn't know what you were going to find. And apparently the their nervous system, when it cools down, they become immobilized. And then you can take it out, put it on a stick, and photograph it in the backyard. And then it, as it warms up, it, it can go on its way, unscathed, allegedly. It's titled, Now We Become Ghosts. When I moved to the West Coast, my father, a street-smart storyteller who read only one book, the biography of JFK, said, don't trust anyone. He trusted the birds perched on the backyard feeder, red-throated above the grass that gleamed with our weeping. He trusted his camera to capture night jar, thrush, swallow, refrigerated grasshopper, a perfect still life until it warmed. His mother came from Ireland on a boat, 
12, motherless, not even a bird to trust, erasing her name in the frozen cave of her heart. Now, as the aperture of morning expands over California, my father is a ghost in my camera lens, collecting variations of light. My eyelid is a shutter that opens to receive the day, so beautiful it must be a lie. This uh, next poem uh, is about numbers. It's titled Numerosities. I don't know if I slid the patio door shut, pushed the lever down to lock it, so I'll drive three miles back home, check two more times. So many monkeys swinging from my noro branches, counting the nerves bundled above the left ear, the blazing apple that compels enumeration. It takes 500 calories a day to grow neurotransmitters, zero calories to recognize the greenness of a leaf, the two-ness of two, the threeness of three. Numbers kept my father's hands moving, always digging four inches deep, 12 inches apart, arriving eight minutes early, his mind monkey juggling evens and odds. My mother counts the teaspoons of sugar for her tea, the minutes while the water boils. Meanwhile, I count the number of steps out of a movie theater so I can count my way back through the dark. This, um, this next poem is titled The Flame. Night's wingspan, wide as moon, stretches toward the horizon. Your ghost is an unkindness of ravens contained like a photograph, moody with shadow. Your ghost is an ancient tree with nests of hair that burn like white flamed hibiscus. The flowers still bloom, filling the garden with light. Each fall, I eat the flowered flame to forget you, petal by petal, eat it down to its grief. O oh, doomed lover, hold your face up to the sky until it becomes the sky. This last poem is uh, my response to the prompt, How Was Your Weekend? Uh, it's loosely tethered to the prompt uh, through the title, which is, um, this weekend, the divorce was finalized. The sun began as a collapsing cloud of dust and gas, energy drawn toward its center. In 500 million years, there will be no life on Earth. The oceans will vaporize. We were once a pulsating, viable star, then a red dwarf contracting at the core, then separate apartments on the other side of town. Now you eat right out of the refrigerator. Imagine your life a long detour leading to a closed down observatory. I open my eyes in the dark. I am a bulb pushing through hard soil breaking slowly into something wholly new, something conjured from dust and strong enough to believe in nothing. 
Thank you. I am pleased to announce our next reader, Dylan Cameron Gailey. Welcome, Dylan. Thank you, Sharon. Thank you, writers at work, Terry, for your ongoing support. Um, without all of you, uh, what I uh, love to do would not have uh, materialized. And uh, thank you, Skylight. Um, I think it's nearly four years ago I started um, a poem, and I thought I had finished it. And uh, the topic was uh, loneliness. You know, it was a good-sized poem, and it was pretty well received. And but it, it wasn't finished, and 47 pages later, I have something that um, is still in the creation. Uh, today, I would like to read some excerpts from uh, this larger work, Kind of Lonely. Uh, this particular selection focuses on obsession, depression, and death. Light, light reading. The lonely will band together Rotating day, swing, and midnight shifts, cross, kiss, and bow, separate again. It is that part of the story. In that second or two, as they kiss one another, that they will forget to share. The lonely see their lives through the unwashed windows of a railroad flagstop. Loneliness scrubs at the mold and mildew of our history, scratches the porous surface of our ancient temples. Lonely clings to the belly like barnacles to a ship's hull. There's the kind of lonely that panics, forgets to tell you to breathe. The lonely hold opinions about everything and everyone, including babies, pets, and your mother. There's the kind of lonely that dulls the blade after one slice. Lonely feels like paper, white as the dusting of fresh snow and older than dirt. The lonely cowgirl grows up with a lasso in her hand but calls it a noose. Mrs. Lonely mistook her husband, Mr. Lonely's compassion for passivity. One day later, Mr. Lonely fatally mistook Mrs. Lonely's aggression for passion. The lonely forgive the limited forgiveness of faith. There's the kind of lonely that draws you a hot bath, lays out a warm towel and clean washcloth, lights candles, locates your journal, and finally places the silk and a razor next to the tub but forgets to leave the note that warns that the razor is fatally sharp. The lonely don't care how they're lit. In the dark, they step off the stool, kicking, wearing only a robe. Lonely accepts the deafening silence that precedes the dawn as it crosses itself like the horizon, falls down like the sun. There's the kind of lonely that wants to wrestle Cramp, clamps its legs around your waist, breaks a rib or two. There's the kind of lonely with no self-awareness of the space it takes up, infiltrates without being given orders from the higher-ups. There is a setting for this larger work, Kinds of Lonely. 
Uh, there's a main character, Theodore, and there is also a town, and the town's name is Soliloquy. This is, uh, this is Theodore's Soliloquy number three. It is that time again to speak out loud, although there is no one awake at this prescribed hour to listen. To listen. To listen. Not even God has time to stop and listen to a good story told from a beginning to an end. This is not a short story. It is not a novella. Why, I'm not even certain that it is a tale, if spelled out, would find a home between the bindings of any literary publication, especially these days. Why, just Saturday, I reeled an article out from the opinion section of the local paper, suggesting that books, as we have known them, are becoming obsolete. And just for a little change of pace, my final poem today is titled, It Was All for the Best, and it's actually based on a true story. Uh, my backyard over the past 45 years has changed a great deal, and, and as my life and the landscape of my life has changed. And uh, this is in remembering the um, sentinel peach tree that had to come down. When the time arrived to fell the sentinel tree, there was no turning back. There'd be no change of heart. After 25 years of careful feeding, pruning, and patience, she simply refused to bear mature fruit. No one in the family could recall planting a seed or sapling. The young peach tree just appeared one bright, promising morning, small, fragile, and wispish, with her mantis green wing-like leaves, her tender, nimble limbs. In the end, her origin remained a mystery, we somehow managed, however, to survive the summer and the pitfalls of 1973. Thank you very much. Please join me in welcoming Helen Yeoman. Hi, I feel like that was a good segue. I'm a Georgia peach. So, um, I'm so excited to be here. This is my first public reading in LA and um, I actually met Terry and my fellow poets last year at this exact event and uh, joined the workshop a couple of months later and here I am today. <laughs> so um, I'm thrilled to participate and to just be celebrating poetry and uh, the work of my fellow poets. Uh, so with that said, I have a, a bit of a theme with the, poet, the poems that I'll be presenting. Um, it's in tribute to poets that have inspired me and that have lived before me. Um, so with that said, I'm going to start with Poetry Bible, which uh, basically is kind of a tribute, well, not kind of, it is a tribute to the six poems that have influenced me um, or meant the most to me as, as a writer and as a reader. So Poetry Bible. I spent the weekend with friends. Friday night, I sipped a fruity Merlot with Barrett Browning, thanked her for understanding my dreams, how easily they shift into nightmares, and how they, like black grapes, leave permanent stains. 
Saturday, it rained. I walked with Plath through the gray day, neither of us expecting miracles. But upon seeing the way water cloaking the wings glistens off the back of an ink-black rook, we rushed home, transformed to write. That evening, I brought my needle and thread to Merwin's. We drew our chairs and stitched our separate losses together. Sunday, sunlight shattered the remaining clouds, cracked them open like eggs. Heavy-lidded, I pressed through the sparkling blue-infused morning, trapped inside a sapphire. Rimbaud expected me for breakfast, our new tradition. The lice had returned, and the salt on his cheeks was still warm. I choked on the rich cologne of lilies and lavender swelling in the spring air, longed to run my fingers through his hair, console him with kisses, and the crackle of white shells, split his humiliation, share his shame. But all I could do was weep for him. Afternoon, I visited Shakespeare, who was exploring metaphors for death. I asked him if he considered himself a thinker like Hamlet or a doer like Ophelia. He didn't answer, and I realized it was futile to love either one, which made me love them more. At night, I met Whitman by the shore, where we sat under his sagging half moon. I told him about the nightmares, the rook, the stitches, the clouds, the lice, and the metaphors. He spoke to me of the sea and the solitary bird he heard sobbing for its mate. I rested my head on his shoulder, weary but revived from my weekend's encounters. And together, listening, we waited for the song. This um, next couple of poems is um, actually a tribute to one of my ancestors. I haven't brought it in class, so it's going to be a surprise to everybody. Um, my grandfather's cousin was a poet um, who lived in Italy in the early 1900s named Umberto Postiglione. And um, this is a very rough translation that I tried to do of one of his poems, and then I have a response. Um, so this rough translation is called, To a Girl. What a lovely thing to again be a boy, reliving the, reliving the age of 15. Passing underneath a house, a terrace, with a heart that aches and sighs. And to pass through the crowd on the street, as if there were no other people, seeing two eyes only, and a little face that drives you mad. And to hear a piano in an alley, gaily, in, gaily inviting others to dance. And in you awakens an ancient torment, desire to cry and craving to sing. And my response is called, to a boy. What a tragic thing to be a girl of 13, to lean on a terrace with a desire to die, and to gaze through the crowd below, spot two eyes staring back, tumble into their blue, gasping for breath, and to hear a muffled piano cry, inviting the crowd to dance, awakening an ancient need to live and craving to fly. Thank you very much. That's all I have.
this next poet, I feel like I uh, share a special bond with him because he was, um, I think he joined the workshop just a few months before I did. So we're the two newbies. <laughs> and I, I proudly uh, introduce Stephen Fleet. <laughs> Thanks for coming out, everybody. Uh, these poems I put together have a common theme as well, and they deal with the evolution of the soul, as well as a uh, Moorish, Moorish vistas that my mind tends to uh, default to. And the first poem is in response to the prompt that Terry gave us. It is entitled Sueñito, which is Spanish for little dream. It is said that every star's wish that goes unheard falls as a grain of sand into the desert of the five-day hourglass, and that star, in turn, falls silent. Behind lowered eyelids of stars, moon-faced saltimbanque silhouetted against the unfurled peacock of morning, they pirouette down orange dunes, emptying hourglass after hourglass into the ever-growing sands of San Sabado Dominguez. A hacienda of heat haze hovers on the horizon. In the courtyard, a gypsy scarved in blue sky spreads cards like white sun arrows across the shimmering tiles. The first one here represents career, if things they do not change. This one is the heart, if things they stay the same. This one here is name, that weighs heavy on your back. And last, this one is time that you never can get back. A child of eerily familiar features enters. He is naked as the wind itself. Shaking his head in disappointment, he stares out with ocean eyes, rips one of his ears from his head, places it on the bleached tiles, and with a finger of shadow, points at it. The child turns away, disappearing with the gypsy into the dunes, trailing behind him drops of blood that spell out patience. Only the ear remains. The ear is now a harp, and with a 100-string strum, the sands swirl, spin, and siphon back into the sun. Flutter of moths against a window pane. The ancient light returning to its brow. The eyes of the clock read zero. Another week has begun. This next poem is entitled Traveling Light. There once was a traveler who realized he had stayed too long in the smoked choked Medina with its high walls of gray stone and myriad convolutions like a fossilized brain where he had had a name and where that name was a hook that tugged thread after thread of compromise and necessity back and forth across the loom of self-denial until was woven the jalaba of his story which for moons had kept him warm, safe, and comfortable but whose coarse fibers his skin could now no longer bear. And so into the city's central fire he cast past in favor of future bid chala to merchants and friends, and walked out through ancient gates into rimless desert night with nothing, no name, 
No place, nothing, just his bare skin, his bare heart, and the clear cold air as true as the stars. This next poem is entitled Stranger. Visions of a distant land inhabited in another life, archetypes from the subconscious strewn across the fertile night. Caravanserai in the shadows, assassins in a trance on Keef. A face appears before me shouting, I am scared beyond belief. Mektub, it is written, and the will, it shall be done. An extended gloved finger pointing, this is him, he is the one. And lastly, I have a poem entitled Anamnesis, which is a term that means a recollection of uh, previous existences. Deepening doorway, opening after you left yourself, found yourself, bound to nothing, in nothing, no ground, no gravity, grave empty, full of air. Pool of night, blooming cloud head asleep, breathing dark sky into the light of you. Magi star gone, future arc unknown. Call of constellations, is it this? Is it then? When will you know? Ghost light inside door, inside window of night. Aftershock of birth into light fragments. Memory is pain, empty architecture Empty mosques, kasbahs, mosaics of faces in blue light, empty. Minaret Wesenkal, empty. Labyrinths of echoes, filled with silence, filled with you. You, the no sound. You, the bell, ringing inside out. Thank you. I'd like to introduce Rana Perrin. Is that good? Yeah, can everybody hear me? Okay, hi everyone. get myself organized here. This first poem that I'm going to read, um, my mother and my daughter were aggravated with each other one weekend and they both used me to complain about each other and I was aggravated and this poem comes from that. Mothers and daughters, the robber of my soul gave me this advice. You're really not depressed if you can erase memories of the past. After all, I did my best. Drink your nourishment from my words. Turn down the volume of your need so you can hear my love. Be strong, blood of my blood. Forgive my cruelties. Do you dare waste your life making me wrong? The pine trees from out my window thrive, through wind and snow, even scorching heat. 
They never cease to be. If I could hide among them, become them, only then could I forget. Now I have a trusting daughter of my own. What will she blame me for when she is grown? And the next one is what I do when I'm aggravated. <laughs> so you know everybody last weekend was Friday the 13th. My favorite thing to do is turn down the lights and watch as many horror movies as I can. Anyway, even if it isn't Friday the 13th. So the title of this one is How I Become Nice Again. <laughs> I buy a ticket to a gruesome movie huddled in a dark theater, fractured music warning of impending terror surrounds me, sending delicious shivers down my spine. I watch horrific murders of people I don't know caught in the lair of hatchet-carrying maniacs or vampires stalking helpless victims who bear fang marks on tender necks caught unaware. Spaceships landing from planets unknown, spewing slimy creatures to destroy me. Adrenaline pumping, I feel alive. Zombies, werewolves, Frankenstein, oh my. I bury my overripe obnoxiousness with popcorn and candy in a safe place. And I was, I was watching Nova one night, I love Nova, and uh, Stephen Hawking happened to be on discussing the beginning of the universe. And he said something that made me realize, living trying to be perfect can make me miserable. So, this is titled, One of the Laws of the Universe. Nothing's perfect, perfection simply does not exist. Stephen Hawking. Sunday, day of rest. No reason to arise. I slip under my blanket of reality, drift into the ethers of memory. Light and sound disappear. Memory carries me to another Sunday. When you are in my bed, you sleep. Rob me of admiring your glass green eyes, tearing myself from your warmth, down the stairs I glide. Musky, sweet scent of hot coffee fills the air. The excited chirping of birds breaks the morning silence. Two years I ached for you, till friendship turned to passion. Two years more, the boredom of routine drifting us apart. I float away from memory, back to my bed, empty of you. Down the stairs I thump. Oops. Sorry. Okay. Forgot that there were two pages here. Okay. Down the stairs I thump. Musky sweet scent of hot coffee fills the air. Sunday paper. The boredom of routine. I ache for you. Uh, and the last one is... I just use it as a trampoline of um, how was your weekend. Unspeakable loss. She feels like she is walking into a room full of snakes. 
She stops her breathing the way she does in storms between the lightning waiting for the thunder. Her eyes scan the room. Slowly exhaling, she takes in the grotesque grandeur of mahogany, dark red wood, richly grained maple and oak, luminous under harsh neon lights. Nowhere to hide, she, she whispers. Plush gray carpet muffles all sound as she walks towards the selection of coffins ornately decorated with handles of silver and brass. She feels lightheaded. Their shapes remind her of oversized hope chests. Thick white satin fabric that reminds her of wedding gowns envelops the insides. Turning to her right, she sees one that seems less final, upholstered in pink brocade. This one, Mom, her daughter's voice, always on the verge of laughter, echoes in her mind. Thank you. And now I would like to introduce Brett Guitar Hoffer. So thanks for coming out today. This is a poem I wrote for Richard Brodigan, author of The Abortion, Trout Fishing in America, The Spring Hill Mine Disaster, just to name a few. It's called The Distance Between Santa Fe, New Mexico and Bolinas, California is 179.9, I'm sorry, is 179.9 miles. I read a poem of yours today about watching a beautiful girl cooking bacon in Santa Fe. I'm guessing you might have had sex or were perhaps in love already, maybe on the road to falling in love. There's no solid evidence of this in the poem, but it is morning and you are watching a beautiful girl in Santa Fe cooking bacon. Those seem like clues to me. Signposts, if you will, on the road to another book cover with a woman you were in love with on it, immortalized until, of course, your heart is broken or you fall out of love or you write another book. I have had this book on this day for over 30 years. You are on the cover alone, not with one of your girlfriends. Your hair is touching your shoulders. This fact concerns me, not the hair, but that you are alone on the cover. Although, in hindsight, a shorter haircut might have been a better choice. <laughs> but it was 1976, and the world was adrift with bad haircuts. It was a time when books like yours Real book-sized books, although paper-bound, were $2.95 plus tax. In this copy, the pages have turned the color of weak, lukewarm tea 
that might have been sipped and set aside during a case of the flu. Small black words floating delicately like escaped stray leaves of oolong or jasmine, offering any tea reader worth anything cautionary clues of what was to come. When looking back, it is common to search for clues. I have lived long enough now to understand this and do it often. I do not, however, see any clues in this poem. There is nothing to suggest that you would die by your own hand in Bolinas, California, that you would put a gun to your head in front of a picture window overlooking the Pacific, and no one would find your body for over a month. And when they did, it would be in it would be a private investigator, not even a friend. The note you left, not even a haiku, said only messy, isn't it? None of this, not one hint, is present in this poem. I am fairly certain on this June afternoon, 24 years later, that I am the only person in the world writing a poem based on these clues other than perhaps a teacher in Japan who changed his name to trout fishing in America. But it is 2.30 in the morning in Japan, and he is most likely sleeping or making love to his girlfriend or passing through the automatic silver doors of that last bullet train before dawn. This is my response to the prompt. It's called Memory Fragment Number Three, Weekend. On Saturday nights, I would watch my parents in our big car from the front window at my grandmother's house. They drove away into the secret world of what adults did on the weekend. Aroma of gardenias from chipped terracotta pots the size of a child disfigured by polio intoxicated me. White bleach of their blooming petal faces aging beneath brown, excuse me, intoxicated white bleach of their blooming petal faces aging brown from heat's nicotine-stained Charles Bukowski fingers. They sat on the front steps beneath the awning suspended by spears, that pungent odor of summer's nightly fornication with summer played over and over on the turntable of cricket's stereophonic limbs, filling the black echo of night with the sounds of crime dramas my grandmother and I watched past midnight. Outside, in wrought iron and glass porch-like cocoons, moths would fantasize of spinning silken webs of larvae, of homicides against butterflies, anything to stop the craving for the nectar of yellow opiate light. And finally, the last poem is called Pink Lady. And so it is August the month of your passing and my birth. Thinking of you today, not on the day of your death, but one day since. Was it yesterday, I ask myself, as I try to pick the perfect apples out from the stack of perfect apples? 
pink ladies imported from New Zealand, where summer is winter, organic, as you always taught me to buy. In those first years, I would remember the day before the day before. Now I question my memory's memory. Was it the second or the fourth, the third or the fifth? No, the fifth was the day Marilyn Monroe died. I'm the original pink lady. That is what you always liked to say, since pink was your favorite color and it was always around you. Even in death, pink traveled with you. Corsage of your body laid to rest against the pink ball, against the pink ball gown of your coffin lining. Seven years, I think to myself, as I fill a plastic bag covered in dancing yellow fruits and vegetables with pink ladies, their tart sweetness serenading my hands. Thank you. And please welcome our next reader, the wonderful Kim Dower. Hi, everybody. It's, it's great to be back at Skylight. And I just want to say, listening to all these poems, um, the most beautiful thing is when to hear these poems brand new, we hear them firstborn. Uh, they come into the classroom, and I remember Brett's Richard Brodigan poem made me cry when I heard it. Um, that's one of the greatest things about what we do every Saturday morning is we sort of give birth to these poems in front of one another, and uh, it's it's fantastic. Anyway, um, I'm going to start with my prompt that Terry gave us, how was your weekend? And I took it very literally, how was your weekend? And I thought about um, what an annoying question that is. When people ask you, usually they don't really want to know, do they? It's just kind of what they ask you. And I thought, what if you told them how your weekend was, really? And what, what would happen then? So, how was your weekend? The lab technician asks me as she sticks the needle in my vein. Routine physical, blood rushing up the tube as if being chased out of my body. Fine, I tell her, all good, really good. Did some things, saw some people, ate out, got rid of shoes I haven't worn in years. Craved ice cream, but had no one to go with. So I went by myself, embarrassed ordering a mint chip chocolate chocolate cone alone in the middle of a Saturday, got over it when I took a bite, euphoric, no longer caring that my son was too old to take for ice cream, wrote a letter to my dead mother, but couldn't read it at her grave because we cremated her. So I read it sitting at the kitchen table, a photo of her propped up in front of me. Sounds amazing, she says, <laughs> my blood still flowing up the tube. New one now, as I'd filled up the first. Where will they send my blood? And how do they test for all the things they test for? And what if they discover I have one of a million diseases one could have? Something to confine me to bed for as many weekends as I have left on this earth? Or what if they find nothing? Will I start to take pictures of my food like a friend of mine does? 
He takes pictures of what he's about to eat, so he'll remember what he put in his body. So if something goes wrong, he'll know it was the yellowtail swimming in lime sauce or the ginger sorbet with one proud blackberry perched on top. He keeps files of photos, so he'll never forget what he tasted, what filled him. I want to taste the blood being drawn from my arm. Wonder if it would taste the same as my mother's. What did you do this weekend, she asks, forgetting she already asked. <laughs> I had an ice cream cone, I tell her. Took a picture of it before it started to melt. Licked a drop of blood, still warm from a new cut. Read a letter to my mother at her grave. <laughs> so there. Uh, so, next poem, I'm very proud to say was in Rattle. It was one of the finalists for the competition. Yay. And... Um, there's like a little gnat up here. Have you been tormented by it? You've all been much more elegant than I because I think it just went up my nose, actually. So that'll be interesting. Um, when I, yeah, that poem. You'll see it next week. Um, what did you do that weekend? Well, a gnat went up my nose when I was reading. This poem is called Why People Really Have Dogs. <laughs> to get the gnats out of the... <laughs> People really have dogs so they can talk to themselves without feeling crazy. Take me, for example, cooking scrambled eggs, ranting about this dumb fuck who sent naked pictures of himself to strange women, a politician from New York. I read about it in the paper. Start telling my nervous cockapoo, blind in one eye, practically deaf, so I have to talk extra loud all about it. And he's looking at me, poor thing, like he thinks I'm the smartest person he's ever heard. And I go on, him tilting his head, and when he sees me pick up my dish of eggs, he starts panting and wagging his tail. I tell him, no, they're not for you. But then I break down and give him some, knowing full well that feeding from the table is rule number one of what you don't do with dogs. But I do it anyway because he wants them so bad because it makes me feel good to give him what he wants. And I expound more to make sure he's aware of the whole political scandal. <laughs> the implications for the Democrats, the hypocrisy. I tell him dogs are rarely hypocrites except when they pretend to be interested in you and all they want is your food. Take him <laughs> for example, right now pretending to love me so much when all he wants are my eggs. Me talking to him when all I want is to say my opinions with no one interrupting. Feel my voice roll out on a clear Saturday morning. Listen to it echo from the kitchen to the bath up through the ceiling, out to the sky, the voice from within, all alone in the morning, as the light from outside catches the edge of the silver mixing bowl, where the remaining uncooked eggs sit, stirred, ready to toss into the pan, cooked, eaten by whomever pretends to want them. That's what they call in Poetry World a rant. <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't know that, but I learned that in, in class, right? 
And then after, you, after a rant, you need to relax, which I need to do a lot. So um, I'm going to read just one poem from my book, we have to say, my book, Air Kissing on Mars. Um, and this poem has a, this, this book has a how-to section for all of us people who like how-to. How so this is how to relax. Sit back, look down. Imagine your lap a stage filled with dancers, toes pointing up, your face their target. Deep breath in, out on three. Now imagine your lap a lake filled with spotted fish floating backward, a starlet on the shore, toes in the water. Keep focused. Imagine your lap the abandoned nest of a loon, lost in the wrong hemisphere, diving for fish, floating backward in the lake your lap used to be. Thank you very much. So I have the honor of introducing our leader, our um, our wonderful teacher, Terry Wolverton, t our tough love teacher, that's what I'm now going to call her, uh, who uh, is, you know, the reason we're all here, and it's her class that we look forward to every Saturday, and I pray the gnat disappears before you, um, the wonderful Terry Wolverton. So one of the things that I am uh, working on doing in my poetry these days is to try to create new associations between things. Uh, associations that will surprise even me as I'm writing them. Uh, so here goes. So don't worry about it. Just let yourself go on the ride. <laughs> There's not a right answer. Wolf Moon. Captive moon, dark in a white room, blood stains on her palm like scars, a promise freely curving in afternoon light. Quarter moon dozing, hand in mine, dreaming her body full, believing her breath touches my skin like still water. A breeze reminds me of her scent, damp and red on my thighs, my fur innocent as birth or footprints in snow. Under her bright fingers, I follow in negative time, clocks stopped for imagined footsteps, bearable burn. I keep her soft howl in my head, her late fire on my skin. Her stories burn others, but I combust. She hangs there, electric. I am shot through. Wanted. I was a wild-haired woman who doubted Satan. I expected immortality, not collapsing curves and a ghostly elegance that makes fools nervous. My shoulder blade was once a lustrous instrument provoking music from the blue bath of time. 
Now I show up at the vertical palace, clasping a bouquet of snakes and a spindly knife. I levitate this speck of world, spin its pale genius into an immense elsewhere, tickle its ghost librettos to achieve a more slithering reason. My mistake was to pursue the robber girl, who shone with great light but could not be the shaman of years, to reach until my hot grasp was broken. Did I justify her bright, glad silence or sound a whirring imitation of her words? What could hold? I am a wild-haired woman who cannot hope. Satan admires my round illusions. He sues this fool, her crystal drops and hot flares never begins to rise, and why is kept eternal. The higher we travel, the always we fall, smaller than no more. Hello, farewell. We were no longer together, but still familiar mom and pop of that little town carved out of desert winter. I was your shadow twin following the dusk of your danger game. You were my surgeon passing a mythic blade over my curious face. You saw our future there but did not hold on. What we risked and why, the simplest answers lost to time. You fashioned a semblance of nothing, didn't learn the cost of ache. All the pain goes to my crown chakra, Orion guarding the difficult sky. Still, I was the lucky one, retaining a greedy wonder. You succumbed to each summer star, dark wash of ravens fallen to the floor of the world. <coughs> Sweet often, rolling morning rapture patterns the dark, quiet susurration of blossoms. Prayer tent swarms with kept bees, their language unwinds the planet's clock. The red stone opens up now, its secrets pouring into folds of tomorrow. Four horsemen walk into a bar. Their consonants rain down like lottery numbers in a paisley wind. I have no umbrella, only light. They win. I won't parrot their news. Rather swing on the lawn or perfect the hive. Mostly I keep my mouth shut, listen to the rooster at the gate, whose predictions embrace a sweeter sky. It's the wrong prayer for a down time when the walls threaten big troubles, but somehow the day lives and the bird stays. And finally, weekend. How a weekend p 
pierces the vast field, makes space for time to swirl and spin, limitless trick of clock that longs for my beautiful unfolding. Bees bathe in the poetry of size. Minutes twist their pretty spirals of light to kiss the bodies of lemons. The weak, a grid of sadness, empty loop of daylight to bed, the forward hands, markers of infinity. Plan driving motion, anticipate next big number. The weak, one long sentence mired in purpose, continuous season of daily crawl. Weekend plays in our heads, fills our fingers with someday blossoms. We need the music of fountains, red nectar touching our throats like time. Always, never, more. We begin in a ritual of darkness and end inside a giant plastic bouncy house. Thank you. I would like to thank Skylight again for being such a grace, gracious host. I would like to thank all of you for being such spectacular and attentive listeners. I'd like you to remind. I'd like to remind you to buy some poetry, and I'd like to ask you to give all the poets another thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.